On January 6, 2021, Roger Stone was holed up in a lavish suite at the Willard Hotel in downtown Washington, D.C. As aides buzzed around the room, Donald Trump's longtime advisor watched on TV with disbelief as protesters breached the Capitol and stormed inside. Uh, no, I think it's really bad for the movement. This, really, this hurts. It doesn't help. Stone had been planning on speaking at the rally that day. He was actually the one who coined the slogan, Stop the Steal. But he hadn't expected this. Still, he stopped short of condemning the violence he was watching in real time on TV. When you, you know, when you can't get a fair and honest judicial opinion, when you can't get a fair, honest and transparent election, when your legislative process is constipated by fear and threat, what was it Kennedy said? Those who make peaceful progress impossible make violent revolution inevitable. As he spoke, Stone was folding clothes into a suitcase, about to leave the city on a private jet. We're hearing what was said inside that room because in addition to the aides and allies at the Willard Hotel that day, there were also some outsiders. Two Danish filmmakers who had been following Stone on and off for years. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Alexis Diao. It's Saturday, March 5th. Today, how a documentary film crew got access to one of the former president's closest allies. And what their footage and a new post-investigation reveals about Stone's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Late last year, I learned that there was a Danish documentary crew that had spent a significant amount of time with a longtime Trump confidant, Roger Stone. This is Dalton Bennett, an investigative reporter for The Post. Late last year, he learned about a film crew who had been following Stone for their forthcoming documentary, A Storm Foretold. And immediately, I thought, we have to reach out to these guys. My name is Christopher Gulbrands, and I'm a Danish filmmaker based in Copenhagen. My name is Frederick Mabel, and I'm a cinematographer. Following the election of Donald Trump in 2016, the filmmakers in Copenhagen felt this dramatic and profound change that was occurring in the United States. I think like the rest of the world, we were holding our breath in amazement watching uh, the world's mightiest democracy going through the presidential election in 2016. The whole circus of it, the whole tonality and, and rhetoric was something that in my lifetime we have never seen. Something is happening in your democracy that looks like a significant change that we don't understand. And I, for one, would be concerned whether it will also be something that we will go through in Denmark uh, at one point. Over the past four months, Dalton and fellow investigative reporter John Swain reviewed hours of the filmmakers' footage. That material, along with other reporting by The Post, provides the clearest account yet of Stone's involvement in efforts to overturn the 2020 election and what he was doing on January 6th. There were a lot of questions about what was Roger Stone doing in the Willard on January 6th. There was footage, there was photographs of Roger Stone exiting and entering the Willard, but by and large, the general public had no idea what was happening in 
inside the Willard? What was happening inside of Roger Stone's suite? Stone, by the way, declined to be interviewed for this story, though he did send us a statement denying any wrongdoing. More on that later. The filmmakers first got access to Stone in 2018. The white-haired political operative had been in Trump's inner orbit for years, serving as an informal advisor to his 2016 campaign. He's been a, a close friend with Donald Trump for 40 years, on and off, or frenemies. I think they've had a very volatile relationship, but they obviously have a lot of shared values and approaches to communications. Christopher flew from Denmark to Fort Lauderdale to meet Stone in his house. He remembers seeing a huge portrait of Napoleon on the wall with Stone's own face superimposed. And his home was filled with, um, with all these photos of him with presidents and Trump and Nixon and all this memorabilia. It was a cultural experience, my first meeting, I think. The filmmakers didn't know it at the time, but Stone was about to enter into a personal and political whirlwind. His close ties to Trump had put him under scrutiny. In January 2019, he was arrested, then later convicted on charges that he impeded a congressional investigation into Russian interference in the presidential election. Trump later commuted his sentence and eventually pardoned him. And during all of that chaos, the filmmakers had extraordinary access to Stone. Roger Stone allowed these filmmakers to basically document his everyday activities during an extended period of time. And, you know, through this fly-on-the-wall footage, through this observational documentary approach taken by the filmmakers, they captured these candid, off-camera conversations. And they even were able to capture text messages Roger Stone were sending to associates on encrypted messaging apps. So why would Stone give such unfettered access to anyone? especially during such a contentious time? It's a great question. And I think, you know, from our own talks with the filmmakers to try to get an understanding of this, they felt that Roger Stone was a person that really welcomed and appreciated any type of media and attention that he received. And that ultimately, these filmmakers are, they're from outside of the United States. You know, they're not part of the political process here. They're not associated with any type of political party. They're viewed more as like a neutral outside actors and observers of this entire process. I think the reason why he, he let us in to begin with was because, I definitely think it is because that we came from the outside and was not a part of like the US uh, polarized media. It was refreshing to him that we met him sort of like blank slate and, and wasn't aggressive towards him and sort of just hung around. I recall he said that if the film was 60% negative, he would be overjoyed. The filmmakers were by Stone's side in the days following the 2020 presidential election. Two days after Election Day, results were still trickling in from across the country. The filmmakers looked on as Stone began setting in motion a plan to challenge the election if it didn't end in Trump's favor. We are relaunching a Stop the Steal. Stone had coined the now infamous phrase, Stop the Steal, back in 2016, to try to prevent Republicans from selecting a last-minute alternative to Donald Trump as the party's nominee. Now, 
Stone wanted the president's allies to challenge election results and keep Trump in the White House. What we see shortly after the elections in November, that it, and it is captured within the documentarian's footage, is that we see Roger Stone engaging his allies, engaging other political operatives to help organize the Stop the Steal effort. I would like you to just monitor the news for the most egregious examples of vote stealing of any type. Ballots found in trash, ballots found in dumpster, ballots burned, suitcases brought into the ele- anything you can find and send us the links. Ultimately, another individual by the name of Ali Alexander, another well-known conservative political operative, becomes the poster child, the person really at the forefront of this effort. But behind the scenes, what the footage shows is that Roger Stone is helping to organize the, that effort. A lot of efforts are going into preparing for this large rally that is to take place on January 6th. The filmmakers return to the U.S. ahead of the January 6th rally. The filmmakers end up staying at the Willard Hotel, where Roger Stone is based on January 6th. The Willard Hotel is a beautiful five-star hotel that's very close to the White House. That week, the hotel was packed with high-profile Trump supporters who were organizing their own parallel campaign to challenge the results of the election. Trump's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, had a room, as did InfoWars founder Alex Jones. The filmmakers weren't sure what to expect. We had a sense that there was an off atmosphere and vibe, but we did not expect anything radical to happen. I think, like most others, we expected demonstrations, maybe even some skirmishes, but my expectation of American security, in particular surrounding the Capitol building, was that it would be totally under control. One thing that struck them as unusual, Stone was being trailed by personal security. Several members of the far-right group, the Oath Keepers. Two of them would later be charged with seditious conspiracy for allegedly storming the Capitol. The plan for the day was that Stone, at some point, would make his way over to uh, the Ellipse, where he was expected to speak later in the afternoon. He's expecting to give this speech from this movement that he believes that he created, but it's very clear there's problems reaching the organizers. He's unclear like exactly when his slot is supposed to take place. What really comes across while reviewing this footage throughout the day is that from very early on, things were in chaos. At the same time that Stone was trying to confirm the details of his speech, he was also answering a steady stream of phone calls from people who wanted favors. Many of them hoped Stone could leverage his connections to Trump to secure presidential pardons for a variety of people. At one point in the footage, Roger Stone receives a phone call from a person who is willing to offer Roger Stone $100,000 to help secure a pardon for somebody named Henry. Of course. Well, actually, that is legal, but if I couldn't, if I didn't have a a really good chance of getting this done, I wouldn't take the money, in all honesty. A lot of people in this business would, but I wouldn't. Stone's right. It's legal to take money to advocate for a pardon for someone else. But it was still striking to hear that moment on tape. We don't know who that Henry is. We haven't been able to confirm that yet. But during the course of that conversation, Roger Stone tells person on the other end of the line, 
that he's planning to go to the White House later that day. I got a meeting over there this afternoon. Uh, I'm going to have a little bit of input into the final list. Uh, it's certainly worth a shot. But at some point that day, Stone's plans changed. In a perplexing turn of events, he said he didn't want to participate in whatever was going on at the Capitol anymore. Goes to the filmmakers as well and says, we're not going. I'm not going to the ellipse. Those around him are disappointed, but Roger's angry. He is visibly upset and is concerned that he might not have a speaking slot at this event, that he might not have the access or the, the prominence that he expected. At some point, Roger Stone makes the decision that instead of risking that, of going through the crowds, of showing up at security and potentially being turned away, that he then decides to watch the speeches live on television in his hotel room, despite all of the efforts that are captured in this video material, right? It's captured in the reporting that we've done of his efforts to help mobilize this movement around overturning the 2020 election results. He's, you know, calling on demonstrators, calling on supporters of President Trump to go to the Capitol to, quote unquote, stop the steal. And that when that day comes, he's just not there. Stone told the filmmakers he wanted to break for lunch and a nap. But while they were back in their own room, they watched on TV as the protest at the Capitol twisted towards violence. Christopher grabbed his gear and headed towards the action. Meanwhile, Frederick waited outside Stone's hotel room for an opportunity to go in. Aides told him Stone was sleeping and couldn't see him. I was getting really stressed because if it was, of course, super important to film Roger in that situation. But then a room service came in at some point, and then I just snuck in with them. And Roger was not taking a nap. Instead, Frederick saw Stone in the middle of a tense phone call. While on TV, scenes of chaos played out at the Capitol. Frederick started recording, and Stone didn't try to stop him. The footage shows that Roger Stone is in disbelief. He's in disbelief at the events that are unfolding at the Capitol. Um, you see a person that is very concerned about the events, but at the same time, the footage shows that Roger Stone is organizing his own escape, his own departure from Washington. You see Roger Stone hurriedly packing all of his belongings in the hotel room, saying to confidants, we need to get out of here. I need to get out of here. A wealthy supporter offers a seat on a private jet departing from Dulles that would take him back to Florida. All right, all right, well, we're going to start pulling our stuff together. But I am getting out of town. And then there was sort of like a little bit of a panicky vibe. They were packing all their stuff really quick and just throwing everything in suitcases while the TV was running in the background where, where you could see sort of like the developments that, that happened at the Capitol. What we later see in the footage is as Roger Stone is leaving is that he confides to an aide and says, this is bad. This is very bad. He believes this is set back, quote unquote, the movement. And that he also talks about how he's concerned for himself, how this new administration that is coming, that he's worried about what the response might be 
to the events at the Capitol, and that he specifically named then-incoming Attorney General Merrick Garland and said that, quote-unquote, that he is not a friend. He was upset and seemed a little bit scared of being arrested for being complicit of some sort. He was very concerned that his involvement in Stop the Steal would have legal consequences. He seemed to become kind of scared and they drove straight to the airport and flew back to Florida. After the break, Stone starts lobbying for the pardon that means the most to him. His own. We'll be right back. After the events of January 6th, Roger Stone shifts his focus to lobbying Donald Trump for pardons. Stone increasingly becomes obsessed with securing himself a pardon out of concerns over his involvement in the events that led up to January 6th. He creates this plan that he's dubbed the Stone Plan. And what it is, is he's calling on Donald Trump to issue a blanket pardon to shield Roger Stone but also Trump's allies in Congress and, quote, the entire MAGA movement for trying to overturn the 2020 election. Stone wrote up the plan as a memo and shared it with the filmmakers. What then caught my eye was then reading it, then almost at the end of the Stone plan, he offhandedly said, you could also pardon me for the second time. And I couldn't help thinking that the whole intent of the Stone Plan was that throwaway sentence, please pardon me once again. Remember, Stone had already gotten one pardon from the president for charges that he impeded the Mueller investigation, but he couldn't get himself another. The Stone Plan as we know it never happened. Not a single person named in Roger Stone's pardon plan received a pardon. And as far as we know, and and what Roger Stone believes, it was the White House Counsel's Office that prevented the effort to issue those pardons. Christopher, one of the filmmakers, was with Stone on the last day of Trump's presidency, as it sunk in for Stone that a pardon was just not going to happen. Time was up. By then, Trump was also facing a second impeachment trial. Roger sees it as he's been going through tremendous suffering for Donald Trump. I mean, the whole trial, the whole uh, Russia investigation, so that Trump did not listen to his pleading for a pardon, um, he found extremely selfish. So he was very angry that morning. He was very, very angry. He felt betrayed. He felt betrayed by a friend and an ally. And he, he, yeah, he was extremely disappointed. I'm done with this president. I'm support. I'm going to go public supporting impeachment. I have no choice. He has to go. He has to go. Run again. You'll get your brains beat in. Stone never did publicly support impeachment. But that day, he was unsparing in his criticism. He said that Trump had set back the movement years and called Trump the greatest mistake in U.S. history. Again, Stone didn't agree to an interview with the Post, but responded in a statement, quote, Any claim, assertion, or implication that I knew about, was involved in, or condoned the illegal acts at the Capitol on January 6th is categorically false, and there is no witness or document that proves otherwise. End quote. 
He called the investigation into January 6th a partisan witch hunt and accused the Post of long-standing bias against him. The story he wrote was a clever blend of guilt by association, insinuation, half-truths, anonymous claims, and out-of-context trick questions. Though he didn't give any specific examples. He also suggested that video clips of him reviewed for the story could be, quote, deep fakes. Stone has also refused to testify before the House committee investigating January 6th. So for now, the revelations in this film and this investigation are some of the best information that we have about Stone's involvement that day. After more than two years of following Roger Stone, the filmmakers are wrapping up their documentary. It was a very volatile process. He is very much a mirror of Trump. It's impulsive, it's conflict-driven, it's confrontational. And that hosts opportunity when making film, but it's also extremely stressful. Dalton says this investigation gives us a clear picture of a member of Trump's inner circle who attempted to undermine democracy and then was forced to reckon with the consequences of the movement he helped create. We felt like we had gotten another piece of this giant puzzle. This documentary crew in Denmark had captured such a crucial and important moment in American history, one that many people, journalists, myself included, were trying to get a better understanding of. A moment that the public is still grappling with. We're still coming to terms with, you know, what this horrific spasm of violence means. What does it mean for us as a country? And what this film has captured is the events that led up to that and the events afterwards by focusing on the role that Roger Stone played in that. And I think that helps us get a bit closer to understanding how we got into this mess. Dalton Bennett is an investigative reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Emma Talkoff, edited by Robin Amer, and mixed by Sean Carter. Thanks to Christopher Gouldbranson and Frederick Marbell for use of audio from their documentary. Their film, A Storm Foretold, is expected to come out later this year. You can watch excerpts at WashingtonPost.com. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. I'm Alexis Diao. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. 